Good morning, everyone. Let's try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. There we go. I, I'm, uh, I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to uh, open God's Word with you today for a few minutes. Um, and we're going to be continuing on in our Person of Interest series that we've been in, as you just saw. And we're going to be in Acts 17 today. Acts 17. So if you have a copy of the Word, I would encourage you to go ahead and be turning there. We've, we've talked over the last two weeks of the fact that there was both a fuse that led up to Jesus arriving here on earth... And there was a fallout that occurred after Jesus arrived on earth. And last week, Derek showed us that the cultural fuse that was burning prior to Jesus' arrival had impacts on how um, he was received. And today, I want us to consider that there was also a spiritual fuse that was burning that led up to Jesus' arrival. One thing that I think we need to understand is that Christians are not and were not the first religious people here on earth. There were um, Jewish people that preceded the Christians. Jesus himself was a practicing Jewish man. And he worshipped in a system that was not a Christian system. You guys understand that, right? We all on the same page there? That Christianity did not exist when Jesus first came here on earth. It's named after Christ, right? You understand that? We are Christians named after Christ, and so we are little Christs is basically what it means. And in fact, it was originally a derogatory term that the Romans used to call them, oh, they're those little Christs, right? That's, that's what Christians means. But for just a second, I want us to put our world history hat on from high school and think back for just a second. So there were several, several uh, religious systems that we could talk about. I mean, you have the Egyptian religious system with their many, many gods that they worshipped. And they even considered Pharaoh himself to be a god, right? You also have Greek mythology, where we learned about Zeus and Hades and Hercules and all of those gods that existed, little g gods. You have the Roman mythology as well, which had Jupiter and Juno and Neptune and Apollo, right? All of these are names that we learn in world history. But the point is this, these spiritual systems were in place long before Jesus' arrival here on earth. There were these other systems of belief that people had. But each one of these systems had an aspect of a savior helping humanity. It was a savior helping humanity. So there's always been this aspect of humanity that is searching for something more than we can experience with our senses. But I want us to ask the question today, is Jesus just another one of these myths? Is he a copycat savior, as you saw there in the bumper? Want to go ahead and get this out on the table? No, is the answer to that question, all right? No. He is not a copycat savior. He's not just another myth that we find in world history, but we're going to see why here in just a moment. But before we do that, I want us to make sure that today, as we read through this passage, that it's not just an academic exercise, like we're studying a textbook here to learn about a historical figure. We're worshiping right now. You guys realize that? You realize that what we've been doing in this room is worship up until this point? And it will continue to be worship up until this point. Just because the worship team sat down does not mean that worship is over. You guys understand that, right? 
Just because there's not somebody playing an instrument behind me right now does not mean that we are not worshiping. This is worship. Anytime that we open up God's word and anytime that we focus on the Lord, we are worshiping him because these words should stir up our affections for him. These words should make us think about him more deeply. And as we think about our God more deeply, the natural response is worship. When God reveals more of himself to us, when we learn who he is more deeply, the response is worship. And so today, as we open God's word, as we read God's word, as we think about our Savior, we're worshiping. Let's have that be our mindset, okay? In fact, I want to encourage you, next Sunday night, we're going to have a night of worship here in this room at 5.30 next Sunday evening. I would encourage you to come. Come back for that. That's next Sunday night. You'll hear more about it next week, but we're going to worship through the word. We're going to worship through song. We're going to worship through fellowship. There's all these different aspects of how we worship our creator for his goodness. But in our passage today, we find the apostle Paul in a situation where he comes face to face with one of these other spiritual systems. So, Read with me. Look with me at Acts 17. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, so you can stay seated this morning. But read with me, starting in Acts 17, verse 22, where it says this. I think it'd be good if I set the stage for you. So Paul is in Athens, Greece, right now, in, in, in our passage here. And he spent some time walking around the city. And then some people invited him, some men invited him to come and speak at a place called the Areopagus. We'll talk about more in just a second. But that's where we pick up. So Paul... Standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us, that you want us to know you. 
And God, I pray that this morning you would use your word to draw us closer to yourself, to give us incredible assurance of the fact that we have a Savior and that you would embolden us to go and share the gospel. We give you this time, Lord. We love you. We're expectant for you to move. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there's three things that we find in this passage today that help us know that Jesus is not just another entry in a long line of Savior myths throughout history. The first thing we see is that there is an innate human desire to believe in God. If you're taking notes this morning, and I think you should, you should probably write this down. There is an innate human desire to believe in God. It's built into us. We've mentioned to you over the last couple of weeks that we're using a book by a man named J. Warner Wallace called Person of Interest to kind of be the the inspiration for this series of messages. But in, in that book, he writes this, The innate human belief in God, a higher power, or a supreme being, is still evident in the world today, even in places where you might not expect it. We as human beings and every human being on this planet has a desire designed into us to want to know something bigger than ourselves. Uh, I saw this week that there was a 2017 study that confirmed that only 7% of the world's population claim a strong atheistic or agnostic identity. Only 7%. So another way to say that is that 93% of the world's 8 billion people say that they believe in God or a higher power of some kind. And that has massive implications for us as followers of Christ, that we have this common ground to start from with nearly everyone on the planet when it comes to talking about the existence of God. Clearly, you are not as stirred up by that as I was when I found that out this week. We have a common ground to connect with 93% of the nearly 8 billion people on this planet when it comes to talking about God. Now, that doesn't mean that you say, hey, let's talk about God, and they go, I must be saved. Let's pray right now. That's not what that means. But it does mean that we have this common ground. Human history is full of examples of people thinking about divinity or the divine or this higher power or God as we know him. So let's think back to our passage. I think it's important to understand where this scene is taking place. So um, throw that picture up, Anna Grace, that, that I have. Um, You can see here, this is Athens, Greece, okay? Now, does does anybody know what that building is right in the middle, up on top of the bluff? The Parthenon, that's right. So it's the Parthenon. Now, the Parthenon dominates the skyline of Athens. you, You see it for miles and miles around. It's up on top of that bluff there, and the Acropolis is that area that's raised, that it's up on top of. The Areopagus, where Paul is in this passage, is down towards the base of it. Now, I don't know if it's exactly on this side of the base or not, but follow with me for a second. There at the bottom of the screen, you can see there's, there's some ruins. That was probably where the Areopagus was. It was also where the Agora was. You may have heard of that from world history. It was this giant market. So it's this place where people are, and it would provide a pretty dramatic backdrop for this speech that Paul gives, right? You wouldn't be able to be in the Areopagus and miss the fact that there's this giant temple to gods up on top of this bluff here, okay? So Paul is giving this speech about the fact that God does not live in man-made temples, and yet there's this giant temple that you cannot miss right there that they had built for their gods to live in, right? 
So you can see how there might be a little bit of tension in, in, in what Paul is saying here and in these guys. But the, the Athenians would gather here in this Areopagus to debate. They would decide affairs. You can take a picture down there, Grace. Um, they would discuss ideas. They would talk about philosophy. And Paul had walked around the Areopagus before being invited to talk to the people there. And he noticed that there were idols and there were shrines present. And the idolatry in Athens is a sign of an attempt to find God. Now, not necessarily God as he's revealed in Scripture. I don't want us to get that twisted. But it, it speaks to this point that there's this innate desire for us to want to believe in God. That there is um, this, this thing that's kind of hardwired into humanity to find the God who made them. But because of sin, we always fall short. And we substitute idols in the place of our creator. And the great lie of idolatry is that idols have no power. They are carved by those who worship them. They have no power to do anything in the lives of those who worship them. But this sense of something greater, this innate desire for God is ruined by sin. And that is what drives humanity to idolatry. However, in verses 22 and 23, Paul says, Hey, I notice that you are religious people. I notice this. So he finds the common ground, right? Remember we talked about a while ago that we have the common ground of believing in something higher or bigger than us. He finds the common ground, and he takes the opportunity to capitalize on that higher ground, or on that common ground, in order to share the gospel with these people. And today, what I want us to do is I want us to look at Paul's approach and how he shares the gospel with these people, because I think that there's a lot that we can learn about it. So the second thing that we see here in this passage is that God wants us to know him, and he reveals himself in many ways. God wants us to know him, and he reveals himself in many ways. Now, Paul, let's, let's follow along with what he does here. In fact, I want to read it again now with this thought in your mind of what the backdrop is, what's happening in the, in the area where he's at, and the fact that he knows there's this idolatry that's happening all around him. With that in mind, let's read his gospel presentation again. We're going to start in verse 23, where he says this. I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship. I found an altar also with this inscription, to the unknown God. And what you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He does not live in that giant temple up there on top of this hill. Does not live up there, is what he's saying. Nor is he served by human hands. So all these little idols that you have, that you've placed offerings in front of, you're not serving God, is what Paul is saying here. He doesn't need anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being therefore God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I'm going to stop right there because I want to see, I want us to see that God, or that Paul uses his knowledge of 
cultural settings, his knowledge of what's actually happening around him, the physical setting. He uses religious background, philosophical background, and he uses knowledge of Greek literature to build a pretty incredible gospel presentation of the one true God as the judge and redeemer of all people. You may be saying, where was all of that in that presentation? I'm glad you asked, because I want to share, share it with you today. So let's look at what Paul says. So he begins by drawing their attention to this one altar. There's this one altar to the unknown God. And Paul is not seeking to just fill in gaps in their religion as if he were saying, man, you guys were so close. Let, let me just fill you in. You missed, you missed this one little thing here. No, that, that's not what Paul is saying. He's not insinuating that they were almost there and he just needs to take them to the truth. No, Paul uses the fact that they have this one altar there as a first point of connection, but then moves immediately to completely dismantle the system of idolatry that they have. He says, God does not live in this temple that you've built up here, as beautiful as it is. God is not served by you by making these sacrifices to these idols. The unknown God of the altar here in Athens is not the God of the Bible, but the presence of that altar, the fact that that altar is there, shows that they thought there was more than what they had created with their idols. It's almost like they made all their idols, the, the Greeks, they made their idols, and they said, you know what, just in case we're not right, let's make one more to the unknown God to kind of cover all of everything else, and that kind of covers our behinds, right? It's almost, that's almost like what they did here. So Paul makes this point of connection with the people, and then he moves to show them where they're falling short, so he preaches the gospel to them in this very creative way. He essentially explains a Christian worldview to them, and he places the gospel within the context of the bigger story of the Bible. He goes all the way back to creation and says, God created everything, and God provides everything that we need. And then God sent a Savior because he is, we are his offspring, and he has made a way for us to be judged, but also redeemed. And so the thing that you have to understand here is that Paul is surrounded by very learned men. This, these are like the highly educated people of Athens or here in the Areopagus. And so the, you have philosophers and people who think in reason. And so Paul is presenting to, the gospel to them in a way that is reasonable, that makes sense to them. But he's also showing that repentance and placing faith in Jesus is absolutely necessary. It's necessary. You can't skip over that. So Paul knows his audience very well. Here in the audience, um, again, I'm going to go back to put, put your world history hat back on for just a second. Most likely at this time in Athens in the first century, there would have been two groups of people who are here at the Areopagus. You have Stoics and you have Epicureans, these two kind of lanes of philosophy, if you will, that are there. Stoics believed that each person should distance themselves from their passions, so throw off your passions, and detach from the external world. They would say, you just need to think, don't worry about all these frivolous pleasures of life, let's just think deeply, and detach ourselves from the world. And the Epicureans believed that everyone should try to become wise by attaining the most pleasure possible. So they could not be more opposite thinkers, right? You have these ones people who say, do nothing that is pleasurable. You have these other group of people who says, do everything that's pleasurable, right? So they're, they're very opposite here. But both of these groups believed that God could be manip manipulated by humanity. And Paul says, hey, that's not true. 
Neither one of you are right. I know you guys both think you're right, but neither one of you are right. Not only did God create everything, but he's also intimately involved in his creation, is what Paul tells them. So it has nothing to do with seeking pleasure or not seeking pleasure. Paul is saying it has everything to do with seeking God, seeking the creator of all things. It says in verse 25, Paul says, He sustains all mankind. He gives to mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul is making the case and trying to help these Athenians understand God doesn't need us. We need him. You have it backwards is what Paul is saying. He has no need for anything, but humanity is utterly dependent on him for everything. So Paul says not only does God sustain all of creation, but he's also engaged with creation. He's intimately involved in the lives of humanity. He's sovereign over all the activities of humankind, even to the point of setting periods of time for them to be on earth and marking out the boundaries of kingdoms. God isn't aloof to what's happening on earth. He is knowable. God is involved in our lives, and he's knowable. And Paul says that God's purpose in creating humans was so that they should seek after him. God loves for his people to know him and discover him. God wants to reveal himself to creation. That's why we have this word. If we were to go over to Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the fact that God reveals himself through creation and through his word, that we have a revelation of who God is. But we need the work of Jesus to be able to fully know him. So Paul is making a pretty solid case for the, necessary, or for the necessity of the gospel. But then he does something absolutely brilliant, in my opinion. Look at verse 28. Paul quotes two non-believing poets who, by the common grace of God, have caught a glimpse of the intimate relationship between God and man. Look at what it says. It says, for, in in my Bible, these two quotes are kind of bracketed off, so it's not even in the paragraph, but it says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul quotes these two guys. The first quote is by a guy named Epimenides of Crete. You guys are familiar with Epimenides, right? I'll take that as a yes. Yeah, yeah. So Epimenides of Crete, he, he wrote of the nearness and sustaining power of God. He was an Epicurean. <laughs> then he quotes a Stoic author named Erastus. You guys know Erastus, right? You guys go way back, I'm sure. But Erastus was a man who wrote of man's creation in the image of God. So think about this. These are two Greek guys, Epimenides and Erastus, who are not Christians. And yet God has allowed them to understand a little bit about the relationship relationship between God and man. And so Paul quotes these two guys who are not believers in order to make a point. Paul knew that the Athenians were biblically illiterate. They did not know the scripture. Now, they probably would have been aware of the fact that there was the Old Testament existed. And you have to think at this time, the New Testament wasn't finalized yet. So the, the scriptures that, he, that Paul would refer to would be the Old Testament. And these Athenians, because they're educated, they would note of, it, of their existence, but they wouldn't be studying it. And so Paul doesn't come to them and say, let me share the words of scripture with you. Because these learned men would say, who cares about your scripture? 
Paul quotes to them from their own people. He doesn't speak to them in the way that he would have spoken to people at the synagogue. He would have just confused them by speaking to them this way. So he begins by sharing these foundational basics, and he contextualizes his method to show these people that the gospel can break through to their knowledge. The gospel can break through. And I think this is particularly instructive for us today. Now, let's get one thing straight. We cannot, we will not, we should not surrender the theological and doctrinal truth of the gospel. This is what is our authority. The Bible is our authority. We cannot skimp on that. But at the same time, Paul shows us that we can maintain the truth of the gospel while packaging our message in a way that meets the needs of a particular audience. Paul shows us that we can turn almost every situation into an opportunity to share the gospel. Paul finds in these writings of pagan poets truths about who God is, and he shares the gospel with them. It's a wonderful example, again, of us finding common ground with people and then building from there to share the gospel. It's one of the many ways that God reveals himself to us. Christians, us, we can use cultural sources as a way to connect with other people. Now, you have to use discretion. You have to be cautious. I'm not saying let's just intake everything the culture throws at us. But as we guard our minds, we can seek to understand the culture around us and build bridges so that we can share the gospel. That's what God's called us to do. So Paul's speech is a way of connecting with people. Think about specifically the people in your circle that we've talked about over the last month here. What is a way that you can connect with these people that's on common ground? Because let's be honest, I think this is a safe place. I can say this here. Most people, if you've never spoken to them before about the gospel or about scripture, if you come to them and say, let me show you in my Bible about how good my God is, they're gonna go, whoa, man, that's weird. Hold on now. What, we've never talked about this before. What are you talking about? But if we can find common ground and build a relationship to earn the trust of other people, to be able to say, look at, let me, this reminds me of something. Let me show you how good our God, my God is. I wanna share this with you. You see the difference there? It's not as abrasive, but the same truth is being shared. So the final thing that we see in this passage is not only that we have this innate desire in us as humans, not only that God wants us to know him, but finally, we can rest assured that Jesus is the one true Savior because God raised him from the dead. Look again at verses 30 and 31. Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. <clears throat> Paul calls out the Athenians that for all of their knowledge, and despite the revelation of God in creation, they are spiritually ignorant. He says, hey, listen, you, you guys have missed it. I know that you think you're smart, but you missed what was right in front of your face. That their ignorance makes it where they don't know God, but that is no excuse before God. Because like Paul tells them here, there is a judgment that's coming. But God, in his great mercy, has made it where he did not immediately dole out the judgment that humanity 
deserves. He has held it back. So it doesn't mean when he says there in verse 30 that the times of ignorance God has overlooked. He's not saying, well, all the things that have happened so far, those are okay. No, it just means that he's withholding his judgment, and those things will be judged at some point. But there is a way to be redeemed. That with Jesus coming onto the scene, a massive turning point has taken place in redemptive history. And now everyone must either repent or face God's judgment. Paul says that the fact that God will judge has been clearly expressed through the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. He has assured, God has assured all of humanity of the fact that Jesus will judge on a given day by raising him from the dead. But the beautiful thing is that if people will repent, the one who is the judge, who will judge sin, can also be the Savior. Salvation comes through Jesus as the second Adam who came and lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we all deserve because of our sin. And then he rose from the dead on our behalf because Jesus is Lord. That's what we celebrate each and every Sunday. That's why we gather. The one who is the judge is also the Savior. And we know that because he rose from the dead. Paul calls those present, all those people at the Areopagus, to repent. And it's a clear call. It's a call for repentance. Paul moves from philosophical debate that normally would be happening in the Areopagus to saying, hey, you have to take personal responsibility for what's going on in your heart. Several things that Paul said would have seemed outrageous to these philosophers. I mean, the fact that they're being faced with their own sin is offensive, right? It's offensive today. It's offensive for me to be faced with my own sin, just like it is for you. Paul also talks about the fact that a man who had died has risen from the dead. And these learned men who think themselves reasonable would have said, please, it's not true. You can't rise from the dead. But Paul had met these Athenians where they were. He preached the gospel to them after making some initial connection on common ground. And the natural response to the gospel being shared is either positive or negative. But it wasn't Paul's job to control that response. Just like it's not our job to control the response to the gospel being shared. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus does not say, go, share the gospel, and make sure that they get saved. That's not what he says. He says, go and share the gospel. Go and make disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And I'm going with you. So it's up to God to to deal with the results, not us. So what was the outcome here in Athens? Well, his speech is stopped. So you can imagine that when Paul makes the assertion that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and that's God's assurance, that there probably would have been an an audible gasp that goes across the crowd of, what? This, This guy's crazy. What? Stop it. Stop this. Stop. Stop. So Paul's speech is stopped. He's, his bold and faithful witness is an example to us. But look at what happens. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius of the Areopagite, who was one of those philosophers and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. We should never judge ourselves or others who are sharing the gospel based on the results. That's not what our mark of obedience is. 
The mark of obedience and success is did we share the gospel like we were told? Not did we go get people saved? That's not the mark of success for us as followers of Christ. The mark of success is were we obedient to share the truth of the gospel? But here's what we learn from this scene as we, as we finish up here. Paul encounters religiosity. He encountered probably a diversity of worldviews here. He encounters some very intelligent, very intelligent, but for the most part, biblically illiterate people. And we will too. Paul's setting is not that drastically different from our setting today. The setting that we share the gospel in, the, sharing, the setting that we live in. But we know that Jesus is the one true Savior, and God has given us the assurance of that with the resurrection. So today, here's what we should do. We should go out in obedience. We should go out in boldness. We should go out in confidence and share the truth of the gospel with the world. Jesus is not just another copycat savior who is a myth just like all the other myths in the world. Jesus is the God of creation. I don't know if you heard me. Jesus is the God of creation. And we get to go tell people about him. Do you understand how awesome that is? We get to go tell people about this Jesus that has radically saved us, that has brought us from death to life in him. And we have the assurance that he is who he says he is. Now, as Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 16, when he sent them out, he said, go be wise as serpents, but be innocent as doves. Part of that being wise as serpents is know your audience. Know who you're talking to. Know how to connect with them on common ground so that you can start that conversation. Don't just blurt out the gospel at them. Share the gospel with them, right? It doesn't say go and scream at people to make them disciples. It says go and teach them. And I don't know about you, but I don't learn very well if somebody's just screaming at me, right? I don't learn very well if somebody's trying to beat me over the head with something. I learn when somebody says, hey, I found out about something, and you have to know about it because it's incredible. That's what we do in every other aspect of life, right? Hey, man, we ate at this restaurant the other day. Oh, my gosh, so good. You guys got to go. Let me tell you about it. Not go to the restaurant, right? <laughs> That's not how you invite people to go to the restaurant, right? Or, hey man, we watched this show the other night. It was great. It had these themes that were really interesting to me. It kind of reminded me of something I read about in Scripture. Here's a conversation, right? So let's be aware. Let's go out and be wise as serpents, but be innocent as doves. The worship team's going to be coming back up here for just a moment. But part of being a follower of Christ is constantly looking for opportunities to find common ground, to connect with others, and then use those common, ground, um, those common ground moments to share with other people. So here's the call for, this, uh, for, the, for today. Let's ask God to make us aware of what's going on around us. I think so often, I know I'm guilty of this, we are just so caught up in what we're doing 
that we completely miss incredible opportunities to share the gospel with people. So maybe today, let's take a moment and say, God, give me eyes to see the opportunities that are right in front of me. But God, when I see them, give me the boldness to act on them. Remind me of the assurance that I have in you to know that what I'm doing, I'm doing in obedience. And it's not up to me to worry about the results. It's not up to me to worry about how this person responds. It is up to me to be obedient, to go and share the gospel in a way that is winsome, in a way that is loving, in a way that shows that I love this person just as much as you love this person. Maybe today, come down here to this altar and say, God, help me be aware of what's going on around me. Maybe you're in this room today and you're hearing about this Jesus for the first time. My goodness, I'd love to tell you about him. I'd love to help you understand how good he is. I'd love to help you understand how powerful he is. I'd love to help you understand what he has done for you that no one else could do. As sinners, we find ourselves in a position that we cannot get ourselves out of. And I don't mean like it's really hard to get out of. I mean like there is no way. It is impossible for us to get out of the predicament that our sin puts us in. But Jesus can get us out of that. Jesus can save us. And and God has given us assurance of the fact that Jesus can save us by raising him from the dead. Amen? It's what we celebrate here every Sunday. It's what we're going to celebrate on Easter Sunday here in just a couple of weeks. But I think today, as we're going to begin this intense uh, couple of weeks of prayer, as we've been talking about our circle of people that God has given us influence in, maybe today is the day that we stand and say, God, I want to be diligent to do what you've asked me to do. I want to be bold in my witness. I want to use the influence that you've given me in, this, in my circle for the sake of the gospel. Maybe today is the day that we make that commitment. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to thank God for the amazing grace that he pours out on us. Let's pray. God, you're so good. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that our judge is also our Savior. And God, just like Paul goes into the Areopagus with boldness, not because he's arrogant, but boldness because of the power that is found in the gospel and in your resurrection. I pray that we would be just like him as we go into the places where you have called us to go, that we would share the gospel with those that we come into contact with. Lord, move in this time. Use this time to glorify yourself. Draw people to you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a decision that you want to make to follow after the Lord, or if you'd like to know more about this Jesus, we'd love to tell you. This is the time where you can come down. Derek's here. I'm here. We'd love to tell you about him. But let's worship together.